This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. I'm trying to elevate small talk to medium talk. Hi, I'm Alexander Chester, and I had a dentist appointment, you car wash cunt. And I'm Av Sinensky, and I know it's a TV show, but I don't get the reference. Welcome back to Pretty, Pretty, Pretty Good, a Curb Your Enthusiasm podcast. We are here today to discuss Season 3, Episode 10, the Season 3 finale, The Grand Opening, which originally aired on November 17th, 2002. Uh, it's been an exciting season, and it is going to end with a bang. Uh, hopefully this podcast does as well, but certainly the season of Curb did. Yeah, it, uh, it ends in a really fun place. I guess we'll see how we get to that spot. Um, I did not. I remembered it as soon as the scene started happening at the end, but when I was watching this whole scene, I completely had forgotten where it was leading up to. So that was really fun. So I have. There's been a nit that I've wanted to pick since literally the first time I saw this 18 years ago, and uh, which has bothered me for 18 years. Every time I think of uh, that scene in this episode, and I actually did some research finally, not having done it for 18 years, and I got sort of a, a semi satisfactory but still largely unsatisfactory answer to that so we'll get to that we also have a special guest on today's podcast but let's jump uh, right into the recap because we got a lot to go through all right let's roll so we are at home how dare Larry... you use that expression when you know so insensitive whatever yes. i'm a couple of seasons ahead of myself. yeah two seasons i think yeah, yeah. So we're at home, and Larry and Cheryl are watching the local news together. Uh, Cheryl is really focused on the fact that Susie has canceled lunch on her again. Uh, this time she's claiming she has a dentist appointment. Um, Larry's like, well, maybe she does. Cheryl says, no, this is really like the grown-up equivalent of the dog ate my homework. And if she doesn't want to go to lunch with me, she should just say, I'd rather not go to lunch with you. Her Susie voice. I don't do a great Susie voice. Um, Larry's still saying, well, maybe she really has a dentist appointment. Like he's, Larry, Larry nails this from the beginning, I think. Uh, Cheryl doesn't think so. She thinks this is just a lame excuse. So Cheryl says, oh, are you going uh, to the office today? Can you do me a favor? And Larry says, like any smart person does when they are asked to do a favor, it depends what the favor is. Uh, Cheryl's a little insulted because like, what could a favor be already? You know, we're married that you're going to not do, but I, I'm still team Larry here. Um, she reveals that she wants him to go pick up some colon cleanse for her cough. He's confused what colon cleanse would have anything to do with a cough, but he reluctantly agrees to take care of the chore for her. Yeah. So they continue watching the news and they see Andy Portico is on the uh, famous local restaurant critic. And he's a very critical critic. 
Um, he gives two thumbs down to some new restaurant, and Larry's very nervous because he's coming to opening night of their restaurant, and from everything he can gather, this guy has the power to basically get your restaurant in the hole before it even gets started. He, you know, he has the power to control the fate of a restaurant, as Cheryl says. Yeah. Um, he agrees, he thinks it's complete bullshit because it's so subjective whether or not a restaurant is good and whether the food is good and whether you, you know, whether you got a good waiter or a bad waiter. Um, so she thinks that's really unfair. Um, Larry thinks that probably what happened is this guy couldn't get dates when he was younger. So now he's taking it out on the world. He's trying to sabotage every restaurant he comes across. Um, Larry says, you know, I couldn't get, get dates when I was younger either, but you don't see me doing that. Uh, Cheryl doesn't clearly agree. She says, oh, really? Uh, kind of suggesting that is kind of Larry's MO. Um, and he, he says, you know, maybe you know somebody who knows him. And you can put in a good word to kind of, you know, maybe I'll give you a, a soft review and be nice to you guys. Um, Larry says, actually, luck would have it that his kid and Jeff's kid, Sammy, go to the same school. But Jeff would never say anything to him. Like, that's just not his style. Which is strange. Yeah. <laughs> not at all accurate. From what Jeff's we're entire saying. job is yeah. to get, get it, put in a good word for people so that they will have career success. Yes. This is like Jeff's exact skill set for his job. So I, I'm very confused why Jeff wouldn't put in a good word for the restaurant that they own in order to help it get ahead. Yeah. So uh, we're at the health store where Larry is going to get the colon cleanse and he's together with Jeff and he notes how much books, you know, in the same way that bookstores, whenever I go there, they make me feel dumb. When I go to a health store, they make me feel unhealthy. Yeah. And he asks Jeff, so really, what's the deal with Susie? How come she keeps canceling on Cheryl with these bullshit excuses? Jeff says, what are you talking about? She really had a dentist appointment. Larry says, Cheryl doesn't believe her. She thinks it's bullshit. Yeah. He's searching for the colon cleanse. He can't find it. He asks a worker. And by the way, this is why I'm completely on uh, Larry's side here. First of all, why would a cough require colon cleanse? That's really sort of a stretch. It doesn't make sense. Yeah. But like the reason that Cheryl wanted Larry to go almost certainly, is because she didn't want to be seen buying colon cleanse in public, which is, you know, just typical Cheryl throwing her husband under the bus, especially since he's like the more high profile. So like if anyone uh, should be more embarrassed to be seen buying colon cleanse in public, it's probably more likely that, you know, the co-creator of Seinfeld, not that famous in the Curb world, but more famous than Cheryl. And, yeah. uh, and of course, that's exactly what happens in this scene. Yeah, so uh, the worker <laughs> yells out to someone, another worker, hey, this guy needs colon cleanse. Do you know where to get the colon cleanse? Um, and Larry's very embarrassed in front of the other shoppers. He protests that's for his wife, but obviously nobody believes him. Yeah. Um, and from across the store, he sees a man who looks familiar. He can't really place it. Turns out that it's the bald chef he hired, but now he has hair. Yeah, quite a head of hair. Quite a head of hair, exactly. So he goes outside to confront him, and he gets the guy to admit that, yeah, I took it off for the interview because I thought it would help me get the job. Uh, he because knew Larry I David. Assumed, <laughs> what? Because he knew Larry David. Yeah, because I assumed correctly, as it turns out, that you wouldn't like someone who tries to hide their baldness, and you're very pro-bald. So I did what I had to do to get the job. Yeah, and I kind of danced around this uh, when we discussed that episode, but because uh, I thought that you didn't really remember uh, this in season 10, uh, in episode 10, I didn't mention it, but he is selling so hard. Like, and I, there, there's nobody who, you know, there's nobody who hates ball, uh, who identifies with their baldness as much as Larry David, and, and then the George Costarin's a character that's just based on Larry David. And 
in that episode, it's so weird how that other guy agrees so hard with Larry and he's selling so hard. And I almost thought that it was too much, but you know, it certainly tricks Larry and uh, you know, he, he bought a hook, line and sinker as it turns out. So, but you know, it just, when someone agrees with you that hard, it's, it, it should be a little bit of a, a red flag that, you know, they're on a job interview and they're just gonna, you know, they're going to sell whatever you're, uh, you're trying to sell. Yeah. And uh, it struck me that this is very similar to the conundrum that many Orthodox people have when interviewing for jobs about whether or not they should wear a kippah or a yarmulke on the interview, um, lest they, you know, highlight their religion, which, you know, for better, for better or for worse, there are some people who specifically would put on a kippah for a certain job interview and take it off for another one. Mm-hmm. Interesting, yes, but <laughs> but it would be very awkward if you uh, were not wearing a kippah because you heard that the interviewer was a big anti-Semite, and then you spent the whole time talking about how terrible those Jews are who uh, wear their head coverings. So, which is uh, basically what happens here, and then they and then he finds you walking out of temple with your with your yarmulke, you know, uh, a couple weeks later. Yeah, we have a we have a friend in common who he specifically did wear a kippah to work, but did not wear. In his in his regular life, so the reverse. He was nervous that his boss would judge him if because he the boss knew him as someone who was at least nominally orthodox, and mm-hmm. he was like no longer observant in his personal life. Um, so, but he thought that it would kind of be like awkward between this guy who he knew from like childhood, who was his boss, if he started showing up to work without a keep up. Kind right? of funny. Yeah, the, the reverse. He was like he felt like he was like being religiously persecuted, yeah. for, like not being Jewish enough. <laughs> this isn't usually what happens. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so Larry's very upset. He says, you know, you were hired under false pre- pretenses. You are bald, but you're not proud of your baldness. You're a self-hating bald man. Yes. Um, so I can't trust you anymore, and you're fine. Yeah, he may hate himself, but being bald has nothing to do with it. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, uh, so Jeff and Larry are driving home, or Larry's, uh, Jeff's giving Larry a ride, and... Jeff is like wondering, so like, what was this guy's plan? Yeah, he was going to leave his at home. Yeah, and where on weekends, he was going to be like living this double life where like half the time he was a bald man and half the man he was a guy with a like flowing locks of hair. Like what, what did he think was going to happen here? Especially, you know, he's becoming a chef at this high profile celebrity restaurant that's getting reviewed. And I don't know what his dating life is, but he's, you know, uh, trying to meet uh, women or men, whoever it is that he's trying to date. And they're going on dates and, and they're seeing his, you know, attractive head of hair. And then they say, hey, I want to come to this restaurant where you're the celebrity chef uh, with, with the open kitchen plan. And they're going to show up and then he's going to be bald there. It's, it's a whole, I guess maybe he could wear some kind of a hairnet perhaps. Although if you're bald, you don't need a hairnet. So then Larry would wonder why he's wearing it. So a lot of questions here about how this guy was planning on uh, executing this. Or maybe he just thought once I have the job, you'd have to be pretty insane to fire me for this reason so I can bring the two payback. Yeah, which is pretty much Larry says. Larry says he had no plan. Yeah. Jeff says, well, he had a good plan to get hired. Yes. Um, you know, he, he figured out that you kind of have a blind spot for bald people, mm-hmm. and that would get him in the door. Yeah. And Larry counters, oh, like you wouldn't have hired a fat guy. Yeah. He says, you know, Jeff, you know, you love fat people. Jeff admits that all things being equal, he would hire the fat guy. Yeah. Larry. So then, uh, so then Jeff lists for Larry the fact that everyone who is in Larry's employ is bald. Which is ironic because uh, no one that we've seen that Larry has hired basically through this point of curb, his lawyer, obviously his manager, Jeff, actually none of them are bald. But everyone yeah, well, Jeff he specifically says that his manager and his lawyer are not bald. Just all Larry the people says, we haven't Jeff seen. Says, well, yeah, you're, there's your accountant and your, your urologist and your travel agent are all, bald, yeah. are all bald, and that should be duly noted. Yeah. But Larry agrees to let him uh, duly noted for the record. Yes. Um, I'm, in a, I'm in a WhatsApp chat called The Record. 
where when any, whenever anyone says in any other WhatsApp chat that they want to state something for the record, we then duplicate it there. So it's on the record. Yes. Um, anyway, uh, they're completely screwed now because he has to now go explain to the investors that they have no chef for the restaurant, which is opening in four days because Larry fired him for wearing the toupee. Yes. Um, and this is what, the third chef, the fourth chef. I don't even know. I lost counts. At no point have we discovered anything about how any of these chefs can cook, by the way, of course. Yeah, well, who cares? The, that's, the menu, that's relevant. Yeah. Uh, what does it matter what the menu is? What, what kind of food you're serving at a restaurant? Yeah, no, not relevant. Yeah. Um, as we'll see later, the, this, the, the next chef is just like, oh, but I can't, I will refuse to do anything with these four things. They're like, yeah. whatever. Yeah, we, it doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah, no one is ever going to want to order salmon in a restaurant. Yes. Sure. <laughs> Uh, so Jeff says, I'll okay, ask. I'm going to take you home, but first we, oh, I'm going to take you back to your office, but first we need to make a stop at Sammy's school. Yeah. Um, so we get to Sammy's school and- By the way, why are they driving way. a car together? Uh, Larry says to Jeff, oh, I got to go buy some colon cleansing. Can you give me a ride, by the way? <laughs> yeah, I wondered that too, how, why they originally are going together. Yeah. Uh, yeah, whatever. Well, because um, Jeff's a as, great comeback guy. As, uh, as maybe we'll learn later on in this episode from someone who's on the show, they just make it up as they go. Yes. Um, okay, so we're at the school, and Larry sees a bald kid, and he feels really bad. He's like, oh, my God, he's, he's probably doing chemo because he has cancer. Jeff says, no, 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 don't worry about it. That kid doesn't have cancer. Some other kid has cancer. Yeah, but who cares? <laughs> yeah, who cares? He's not here. He's like, it's like, the, it's like the wrong person from last week's episode. He's like, but the wrong person, some people have a name. I don't care about the wrong person. Uh, yeah. So it's just some random person. So, some poor 17-year-old does have cancer, but not relevant. Yeah, but it's not the one you're looking at now, so you yeah. didn't feel bad. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, it's a different kid. This reminds me, the- uh, did you ever read um, um, The World According to Garp? No. Uh, or, or, or see the movie. So, no. all right, well, I'm not going to get down a whole lot of tangent here, but uh, there's a similar concept in, the, in that book, which uh, I may be yapping if you've uh, read The World According to Garp. Um, well, I haven't, so I'm not having. Yeah. But hopefully, uh, someone out there has. <laughs> um, so Jeff explains that you know his a bunch of his friends, in order to show solidarity for the kid with cancer, they all got their uh, heads shaved too, so they're kind of all in it together, and he doesn't feel like he's uh, standing out. Yeah. Uh, which is a very nice thing to do. Yeah. Although, ironically, Larry does not consider them part of the bald community. Well, yeah, of course they're not bald. If you're not bald, if your hair can grow back. Yeah, that, but that's a choice. Remember, as he says to the cop. Right. Yes. I, I agree. I agree with Larry. Uh, Larry's very touched. He says, you know, maybe one day I'll do something nice like that. Mm-hmm. Um, Jeff says, well, you already have a head start, so <laughs> shouldn't be too bad. Uh, we see there's some sort of parent-kid dodgeball game going on at the school. Uh, this is very strange. I, yes. you know, <laughs> I mean, like, oh, do any, none of these parents work when they come or they just come to pick up their kids and they just play dodgeball for a while? I'm also, as both a lawyer and a board member at my children's school, just the liability here makes me very Yeah, this, would never, this wouldn't happen. Yes. Um, Larry spots Andy Portico playing. He's uh, getting involved in the game. He, Larry says he wants to get in. Jeff kind of pushes him into the game. Um, the game gets very intense very quickly. And Larry, Billy Madison style, launches the ball at Portico, hits him directly in both thumbs. Well, but to be fair, we have to acknowledge that Portico is being a complete ass to small yes, children, yes. whipping the ball at them, insisting they're out yes. when they're not out. And, yeah. Yes, yes. He's, <laughs> he's, he's taking the game way too seriously and yeah. Really, yeah, really bullying everybody. The curmudgeon we uh, saw him on TV in the first scene is uh, not a character. That's, uh, you know. Yeah, he's uh, yeah, yeah, someone we'll, in real life. Yeah. We'll see over the course of this episode. Yes. Although he's, he, he has an ability as, you know, someone who's on TV probably needs to, to kind of just like flip it on and off 
whatever yeah. he feels like. We and might he, learn he, he later in this episode that, yeah, on TV, sometimes people play a character and uh, they're not <laughs> <Yes>. always. <laughs> yes. Um, so he hits him directly in both thumbs and he yells out in pain. So we head over to the restaurant. All the investors are yelling at me. I really, I love the this, scenes this that we've had throughout this uh, season when like the, the investors just all yell at him for being an idiot. I like when people yell at Ralph. Hey, Mark. Yeah. Um, they want to know what he's thinking. Larry's like, I just was just getting involved in the game. I don't know what you want from me. Um, anyway, we open in three days. It's really hard to explain out of context, but I think, you know, I do feel for Larry because Portico was much worse than Larry in this scene. Yeah, and also it's like, he didn't do anything wrong. He, like, it was a game. It was a legitimate yeah. game. He threw the ball trying to get the guy out. He wasn't trying to hurt him. Yeah. Like, and honestly, like, he shouldn't, like, you shouldn't really be able to break a guy's thumbs with a dodgeball, you would think. But especially, like, you know, there's only, like, Larry David is hurling that ball at such high speeds that, you know, I'm, that's never happened in the history of dodgeball. Yeah, it's not Nolan Ryan throwing the ball there, but then we don't yeah. have an episode, so. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so um, they, they all think he's crazy because, like, who cares? Like, why did you get rid of this guy? Um, Larry says, I had no choice because he lied about being bald. Um, he says he's literally a bald-faced liar. Um, which I'm sorry to tell you, Larry, is not a thing. Yeah. That's not the expression. Yeah. It's bold-faced liar with an O. <laughs> but I don't think most people know that. Yeah, well, I guess that's what he was counting on. Yeah. Um, the, the investors are really starting to lose it. You know, they're saying we have so many problems. Ted is out. And even though Larry, you know, puts in for extra, like, you really got to pull us out of this mire. And Larry wonders, are, are we also in a muck? Because muck and mire usually go hand in hand, and I'd like to know what we're dealing with. Yeah. That's really the focus here for uh, everyone else yeah, in the room. We, we, yeah, we need to really assess the situation. Is it just the muck or also a mire? Um, but yeah, the investors are more focused on the fact that, you know, this is really all moot anyway because Portico is going to slaughter us now because of Larry, because he's going to be predisposed to hating us. Um, so Larry agrees that his only chance is to try to go over and apologize to Portico. Mm-hmm. So we head over with Larry. He gets to Portico's office. He comes in. Now, I was a little curious. What does Portico do other than the two-minute clip he gets on the air? Like, what is this office? Who is this assistant? Where are we? Um, I mean, they could like be like they have to like scout out different restaurants and figure out which ones to review next. Yeah, I don't know if like a local channel has such a you know such a huge budget for a. But who knows? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, that's a good question. I mean, you know, he's on-air talent, so I guess he he has an office and an assistant. I guess so. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we see he has these ridiculously giant casts on, like he's covering his entire arm. Um, yes. Completely <laughs> unnecessary for a broken thumb. Yes. Um, but you know, it's uh, it certainly uh, gives it an air of dramatic. Yes. Um, Larry's like very apologetic. Portico is actually much nicer than you would expect. Shocking. He isn't, he isn't too angry considering that this guy broke his thumbs in the dodgeball game the other day. Yeah. Um, and he laments, you know, I'm not really going to be able to review the restaurant anymore. This, I, you know, I can't do the thumbs shtick, and without the thumbs, that's really all I got. Um, Larry says that's a shame, but he's clearly very relieved because he just, you know, he doesn't want Portico anywhere near the restaurant. But he yeah. says anyway, it's not really relevant because we don't have a chef. We just mm-hmm. lost our chef. Mm-hmm. Portico says that's interesting. As luck would have it, I know a great chef named Guy Bernier who just moved here from New York. He was a, a chef at a very fancy restaurant there, Martins, and I'd be happy to make an introduction. And it's weird to me, does a chef as high profile as that just move from New York to L.A. without another gig lined up? Yeah, you would think that like someone like that has like some yeah. headhunter who for like people of this caliber yeah. and has like already lined up 
three options for you before yeah. you're thinking of moving across country if you're, yeah. if you're someone of that level. But yeah. I, I don't know enough about the industry. Yeah. If only we had somebody with the experience in the industry coming out in this episode later. Or at least to uh, play oh, some in such experience. That is true, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so uh, Portico's assistant comes in with his lunch and tells him it's uh, spaghetti with meat sauce with some cheese. And he immediately calls her a fucking idiot and a fucking moron yeah. because, look at me, I can't eat that with my thumbs like this. I should have gotten me something that I could eat with a straw. Yeah. Um, so yeah, he goes, he's a very, hori- a very horrific. Uh, yeah, it's right. an extremely horrible person. Yeah. Um, Larry's, you know, trying to butter his bread as much as he can. He, uh, he volunteers to feed Oh, he'll do more than butter his bread. (laughs) Yeah. He, he, uh, he offers to help feed him the spaghetti to him. And he, uh, very much like Elaine with that, uh, older gentleman boyfriend with the beans, um, helps to feed it to him. And, uh, Portico seems like he's enjoying it. Yeah. And, you know, but this scene strikes me as like, Larry often does this where, I guess in his mind, he's trying to do something nice, but by going overboard, he could only screw himself. Like, like we had a couple episodes ago where he's folding the sweater. The way that he's like shoving this food into Portico's mouth, you assume as you're watching it that he's about to, you know, screw something up royally and lose the chef that he just got. It doesn't actually turn out that way, but it seems as when Larry's shoveling this food in his mouth as if it's going to backfire. Yeah, this is, um, this is something that my wife does a lot. And I, and I always tell her, because she'll ask me to do something and I'll say yes. And then she'll keep talking. And it's in, uh, in like salesman terms, it's yeah. called selling past the close. Yes. Which means you know, when somebody has agreed to do what you said, you should yeah. stop talking. I always say to my wife, take yes for an answer. T- yeah, take the yes only thing that could happen is their mind. I'm like, I already said yes to what you want. Why are you still trying to convince me? You just might accidentally say something that's going to make me realize, oh, wait, I don't really want to do this. Yeah, no, I agree with you. Um, okay, so we're uh, we're back at the restaurant, and it looks like it's a done deal. They're gonna hire G or Guy for the restaurant. Uh, he's getting ready to sign the papers, but he says, "I just want to mention one thing." And by uh, the way, I want to point out he is signing a contract, which we haven't seen anyone else do. But if these guys all had contracts and weren't just like employees at will, then how did they justify firing? You know, you can, if somebody has a contract, you can't fire them for. Uh, you know, wearing a toupee. I don't think that invalidates the contract. So, well, he was he was hired under false pretenses. <laughs> so, I mean, they would be in litigation with all these previous chefs that they fired for various reasons, or maybe they're just paying for like five chefs at this point. As Larry says, it's only money. Who cares? <laughs> yeah. Who were the other chefs? Who did we lose? We had. Well, well we, we had Ted's Ted's personal Josh. chef. Was never hired, but no, he was saucy. never given a chance because the food was too saucy. Yeah, the one before that quit because it was a uh, it was a celebrity restaurant and it was going to be reviewed in the papers. <laughs> right, right. He didn't when he hired when he he didn't know that there would be people patroning the, yes. the restaurant. Ted Ted's and Michael York and Larry David. You know, uh, yeah. So then we had then we had of course the bald one. So was Gee just the fourth? I think there was one earlier in the season. Yeah, huh. that Larry screwed up somehow, and so. that's why he becomes more involved. Yeah. Maybe the fifth. I forget. Someone right. can tell us. Well, yeah. Um, seems like the type of thing we probably should have looked into before <laughs> on your podcast, but what are you going to do? Um, so he says, there's one thing I want to mention. Um, you would think that this would be the time that he would mention, oh, by the way, I have Tourette's. Uh, but no, that's not the one thing that he needs to mention. What he needs to mention is that he won't do anything with salmon or with capers, and nobody cares. So yeah. that's fine. Um, as he's signing, Larry spots a set of numbers that appear to be tattooed on his forearm, uh, leading Larry to believe that this is a uh, Holocaust survivor that spent time in a concentration camp. Yes, on his and inner forearm. 
yeah, inner forearm. And he kind of like nudges Jeff and shows and gets Jeff to look at it so that he knows what we're dealing with here too. Um, he signs the papers. Everyone is very excited. He says, okay, I got to go. He walks out and as he exit, he belts out a series of curse words, which they say, you know, this guy just has a wild attitude. Yeah. And, and now, and you know, I don't know in 2002 how much we knew sort of about chef culture, but now with all the, the television shows, that uh, portray chefs, we know that chefs tend to be, uh, or at least the stereotype of them now is that they're a rowdy sort who, you know, have lots of tattoos and piercings and curse a lot. And so uh, him walking out and dropping all those random curses, the shit fuck, you know, oh, we probably got a ticket. That, that's sort of, that's more like what I think, what we would imagine a chef to be in 2020. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It was like very, uh, very Whereas strong. most of these chefs did not really, you know, did not really seem like the type of people that, you know, when you watch chef shows are sort of the high profile chefs nowadays. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Okay, so um, we're back home and this is, it's like, it's like such an awkward scene because like we go home to see them getting into the car. Um, so just like, it's just like weird, like yeah, why not just narrative story. Yeah. From the cut. Yeah, yeah. Well, I guess they want to have her make a halt to do about it being messy, but like they could have done that with her already in the car, just like reaching down or something. And we've seen Larry's car Uh, very frequently. It's never been messy, and now it's the most disgusting car you've ever seen. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, some uh, some red comedy over here. Um, So Cheryl's like, "This car is, uh, you know, a mess. We got you got to get this thing clean." Larry says, "Okay, well, I'll stop on the way to drop you off. We can get a quick car wash." And she's already getting apprehensive because she has her lunch with Susie today, and you know, she doesn't. She wants to make sure that she's not the one to ruin it uh, because you know she's been giving Susie a hard time for all the cancellations. Yeah. Um, but Larry's like, "No, no, no. It'll be just two minutes. We're definitely not going to get stuck inside, and you're going to get soaked in the car wash, and it's going to ruin everything. So yeah. we can totally go." Yeah. Um, Oh, twist. Um, they do get stuck inside the car wash. Um, so, so Larry, of course, now Larry has a, an amazing cell phone that is able to call from inside a car wash. Yeah. Um, he gets information. All he has to say is the name of the car wash. And the person is able, you know. He well, we know the information car. in L.A. is amazing because he found Crazy Eyes Kill his address. <laughs> right. Right. So. He's, like, he called, he's like, hi, information. They're like, hey, can you get me the woman from last week who got me? Because she was really good. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe I, I bet Larry David has that person's direct line. Oh, at this point, yeah. Yeah, like he's he somehow made a, a donation or something and he just gets straight to the, the woman who knows how to find people. Um, so yeah, so they get information, they get all, within like five seconds, they're at the front desk. It's yeah. amazing. Um, and she, but she, unfortunately, the woman at the front desk can't hear him as Larry's screaming, we're stuck in the car wash, please turn up the car wash. But yeah. she can't hear anything and she says, please call back later. Um, Cheryl, meanwhile, has... Uh, needs to really go to the bathroom, I guess, because of the colon cleanse. Oh, so uh, okay. So it wasn't clear to me if she's suffering yeah. from claustrophobia or anxiety. All of a sudden, Cheryl starts freaking out. Yeah, they don't make it clear. I, I forgot uh, about the colon my, cleanse. My second okay. time watching the episode, it clicked for me that it's probably Got due it. to the colon cleanse. Okay. Which, otherwise, that that whole thing makes it doesn't belong to the episode. Yeah. Other than, I guess it's a, a place to see uh, the, the chef. But yeah, like, but they don't really need that. Yeah, yeah they don't need to invent. By the way, if you're stuck in a car wash, can't you just, you know, switch the car from neutral to drive and just, like, drive forward? Uh, yeah, you would think. Yeah. You would think you could do that. Um, yeah, I mean, it seems safer does, than, like, opening the door and escaping in the middle yeah, of the Yeah, what Cheryl does is the least sensible option. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I would sooner just, you know, just whatever. Go in the, if you have no choice, like, it's go in the car. Um, but, yeah, maybe not. 
Um, yeah, so she gets out. She gets completely soaked. She's getting nailed by those. I don't even know what to call those. Like those like big like fluffy things that like hit the car and like get soap on it. Yeah, the type of thing that like it probably like it looks like it would be fun to walk through that, but it's probably actually extremely painful. Yeah, probably. It's fun when you're on the inside. But of like car. it looks like oh, it's like so comfortable. It's soapy. It would be fun yeah. to just like walk through that. Yeah, it's like big pillows. But yeah, that's yeah. not what they are. <laughs> big pillows that ram into your head at very high yeah. speeds. Um. So we, uh, we go back to the restaurant, and uh, it's opening day. They're putting the sign up, and Jeff tells Larry that now Susie is curious at Cheryl because she doesn't buy this stuck-in-a-car-wash bullshit, and Larry says, no, it's actually true. I was there. So you have, like, both of the men are vouching for their wives, but the wives still don't really believe them, which, I mean, Susie certainly shouldn't believe, oh, well, if Larry says so, yeah. I mean, like, how many times have Larry concocted bullshit stories to convince her of something? Yeah, um, and this and one yeah. is as big a bullshit story as you can imagine. Yes, but, yeah, but I guess the irony is at this time it's actually true. Yeah. Oh, Larry is asking the team, you know, is there something we should put on the table beforehand, you know, which is, you know, exactly the type of thing you want to first start thinking about the day that the restaurant is opening. Uh, maybe bread or breadsticks. Someone suggests olives. The chef yells out, no olives, because there's nowhere to put the pit. Um, and, you know, the consensus is actually, yeah, that's probably right, um, which I think is true. Like, it's, I really like olives, but it's always kind of weird to just, like, have the pits, like, in a little tray on the table as, like, you're eating a fancy meal. Yeah, I mean, it would help for us to know, like, what genre of food is being served at this restaurant to know, like, what they should have on the table. But, of course, we'll never learn that. So. Yeah, we just know no salmon, no yeah. capers, and no, no kebabs. At the table. And no kebabs, yes, correct. Yeah, those are the only rules. Um, yeah. So, Larry notes again, you know, this guy has quite the personality. Um, <laughs> yeah. He then yells, again, out a bunch of curse words. And now they realize, mm, I think this guy has uh, Tourette syndrome. Yeah, and that's at least the why... stereotypical way that it's portrayed uh, in uh, television movies, which is that people yell a string of curse words, which is not how you know anyone that I've ever met with Tourette's. It's not how it manifests itself. Um, yeah, I mean it's yeah, it, it's, it's not usually motions or sound or like just sounds, but yeah, it's always curse words. In, uh... Yeah, on TV it's usually curse words because I guess that's funnier. Um, yeah, there was a there was a, there was an episode of uh, South Park where Cartman claims that he has Tourette's, so that way he could just like say whatever he wants, whatever he wants, and then blame it on Tourette's. Yeah. Um, so what they realize is Portico obviously knew about this, and he must have been setting them up as revenge against Larry for breaking his thumbs. Um, and they're all like, "Okay, that's it. we we have to get rid of this guy because it's going to be a total disaster." We're going to be the laughing staff restaurant with the chef who yells curse words while you're eating dinner. Yeah. Now they come up with the absurd theory that Portico knew this and was sabotaging them because Portico, A, knew that the guy had this involuntary cursing. B, knew that it didn't have an effect at his previous restaurant because the kitchen was in the back. And C, knew that at Bobo's that the restaurant would be in the front with the open kitchen that it could like there's so many things that they have to assume that he would have known. It really doesn't make sense for them to think that Portico sabotaged them. Um, yeah, counterpoint to your earlier question about what is this elite New York City chef moving to L.A. without a job? Um, That's why he couldn't get a job, you're saying? It could be, yeah. Like, he was having trouble, and Portico knew about him because maybe he reviewed his restaurant, and he like, maybe this guy reached out to Portico and said, hey, do you know anyone in L.A. that's looking for a chef? And he kind of knew that this guy's looking, and he knows why he's having trouble. So this is the has- only fancy restaurant in L.A. that, that doesn't have – like. It just every other restaurant has like an open kitchen style where you know you ha- you can't hide the chef in the back. 
I don't, don't know. know. That, that, yeah, no, that, that, that's definitely a, a hole in yeah. it. But I guess maybe he figured, like, you know, this guy is a pain in the neck, and I'm just going to foist him on him, and, like, you know, probably something bad will happen for it, and they'll yeah. probably be annoyed. All right. Um, but anyway, um, Larry says, no, we cannot fire him because he's a survivor. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, this is, know, I'm going to complain about this now. So, and again, this, is, this had bothered me for 18 years. So Larry assumes that because the chef has numbers on his arm, he must be a Holocaust survivor. So leaving aside for a moment that it's obviously insane for someone to write a series of numbers on that exact <laughs> spot of their arm, even yes. if they're trying to remember something. Yes. And also, by the way, they're so easy to rub off as we see the chef later do. Like they almost certainly would come off at some point in the last several days since Larry first saw him, you know, from the shower or whatever. Um, not to mention the fact that restaurant kitchens are, you know, pretty hot and sweaty. Forgetting all that for a second. What's always bothered me is the fact that, like, you look at how old this guy is. He appears to be around 45 or 50. And this is in 2002. So it's impossible for him to have been a Holocaust survivor. It just, it doesn't make any sense. You see someone with numbers on your arm, you assume, oh, he must be a Holocaust survivor. But if you saw somebody today in 2020 with numbers on their arm who wasn't really, really old, you wouldn't think that. You would think, why does this person who obviously is not a Holocaust survivor have Holocaust survivor type numbers on their arm? Right? Uh, yeah. It's, it's, that's it's, it's a little bit of a leap he makes. Yeah. Um, now, so I actually... Especially I just, since, the, you know, not a lot of Jews walking around named Guy Bernier. Yeah, well, I mean, he could be like a, a French Jew who, you know, somehow ended up from Paris in Auschwitz and then escaped and became a celebrity chef. But um, so I, I, in, in advance of this podcast, I looked it up. The actor who plays him is Paul Sand, who uh, we may learn later in this podcast is a, a celebrated uh, improviser. And um, but Paul Sand was actually uh, shocking to me, he was born in 1932. So technically speaking, he could have been a Holocaust survivor as he would have been, you know, 13 years old when the war ended. But, and I had, I, you know, I hate to get really dark here, but um, the numbers were put on the arms of, of the slave workers in Auschwitz and children would have just gone straight to the gas chambers. So, which this is a great topic of conversation for a comedy podcast. But so my point is like somebody who arrives at Auschwitz at the age of 10 or 11 or whatever would not have had a number tattooed on his arm. So a very dark tangent, uh, but it's bothered me for 18 years. The point is that this guy could not be a Holocaust survivor. Those numbers could not be Holocaust numbers on his arm. Yeah, um, what, what, uh, what struck me is Larry says we can't fire him because he's a Holocaust survivor. Um, it doesn't no, Larry say, doesn't say that. He doesn't say – he just says because he's a survivor. He doesn't actually well, say the word Holocaust. Yeah, because he's a survivor. Um, and what nobody says is, well, also we can't fire him because you're not allowed to fire somebody because they have a disability. Yes, and, and, and this guy has a contract we've seen him sign. So. Yeah. Yeah, but, we can, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, but yeah, we, well, we can say survivors. The reason we can't fire him. Um, so we head back home and Larry is filming Cheryl in on everything that happened. He explains, you know, what happened is, you know, it is, uh, the kitchen was all the way in the back, but in our restaurant, the kitchen's all the way in the front and it's like kind of like an open concept where yeah. everyone can see the chef and hear the chef. Um, it's going to be a total disaster. Yeah. Um, so yeah, but I guess we're going to see what happens. Uh, he compliments her outfit. He says how good she looks. Uh, she wonders if it's a little too not landing. Uh, yeah. To which Larry says, I know it's a TV show, but I don't get the reference. Yeah, I agree with Larry. Um, I, get, I, you know, I get the reference. Um, Knott's Landing was one of my parents' favorite shows. That's the show with Don Knott's, right? Uh, yes. Yeah. And they were so obsessed with the show that my youngest sister, who goes by the name Hannah in, uh, in general life, is, that's her Hebrew name. Her English name is Nicolette, named after Nicolette Sheridan, the actress from Knott's Landing. Oh, okay. Which... Uh, to this day, remains one of the strangest things my parents had ever done because, uh, you know, the, the rest of us don't have names like Nicolette. 
Like my name is Abraham and my sister, my other sister's name is Rebecca, which are just like very generic Jewish names. Mm-hmm. And Straight my out third of sister's name is Nicolette. Yes. Does anyone call her Nicolette? Um, no one in like her actual life. Like that's what, that's what her legal name. So like when she would go to school, sometimes she would be called that like in college or whatever. But you know, when she goes to the doctor, maybe they call her that. But other than that, no. Hmm. Um, Cheryl is remaining very hopeful that the chef is not going to curse tonight. Larry says, well, he really can't control it. And both times I met him, he cursed. So my, my really only question is why he doesn't curse in French instead of cursing with a French accent and saying, motherfucker. <laughs> Cocksucker. Uh, this is an excellent French accent. <laughs> oh, thank you. Uh, my, my French accent is better than my Susie accent. Apparently. Yes. <laughs> um, Cheryl, all Cheryl really cares about is he's dreading running into Susie Green, who hates her now. I noticed that Cheryl refers to her both times as Susie Green and not just Susie. Well, there's other Susies in this episode, although actually it turns out one of them is named Teresa. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, it was just like, like Larry should be like, yeah, I, I know who Susie is. Is it, is, what's more annoying to you when someone is referred to as my wife or when someone is referred to by their full name in both circumstances where you could just use yeah. the first name? My wife, I think, is more annoying because I think it's more, yeah, Susie Green doesn't bother me as much, but it's like they're like best friends, like the Greens and the Davids. Like she shouldn't be referring to her as Susie Green. Like Susie means Susie. Like we know who Susie is. Yeah. Okay. But yeah. Um, yeah. These are very important pet peeves. So it's opening night and we're at the restaurant and everything looks great. Everything's going very nicely. Um, even Larry's bell idea appears to be a big hit. It's working yeah. very well. Um, Larry introduces Cheryl to the group of investors and the managers. You know, here's the whole team. And they're basically all like, you know, Larry really came through. He's the one that pulled this all together. If not for him, um, well, it's kind of like, if not for him, we would have been fine six weeks ago. Yeah. But if not for him, we would have been screwed this afternoon. Yeah, every single person who is in the restaurant is someone who Larry knows. In fact, anyone Larry's ever met is here. Uh, yeah. You know, uh, his housekeeper, Dora, is here. The guy who cleans the hallways in his office is here. So Larry had all yeah. the tickets for tonight, basically. Yeah. This is Larry. Well, right? well see, at this point, it sounds like Larry put up all the money for this place. Yeah, so. I guess so. Yeah. So I think what he says goes. Yeah. Um, and I think it is normal that, like, the opening night of a restaurant would be comprised of primarily, like, friends and family of... Yeah, but these aren't friends you know. and family. These are just like random people who Larry has, you know. <laughs> yeah, and they're well, only you know, they're only Larry's people. There's nobody the for Jeff. There's nobody for Lou DiMaggio. There's nobody for te- oh. uh, for uh, for Michael York. Lou DiMaggio's friends and family aren't in the show. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> they don't get to come to dinner. Yeah. Um, so Larry's going around and he's having the time of his life, greeting all the patrons at the restaurants. Um, which, as we know, is this is the reason that he said he wanted to get into this business. He wants to go around the schmooze with the patients. Well, but hold on. But, but he didn't want to talk to people he knew. He only wanted to talk to strangers. Right. Yeah. And I guess yet, some, this is sadly, everybody show. here is somebody he knows. Yeah. Um, but really, this works better because really, um, when someone's at a restaurant, they might be interested in talking to you if they know you. Um, they're not going to want to pause their dinner to talk to a stranger. Yeah. Even if you're the, uh, the money behind the restaurant. Yeah. The advantage um, of, like, if there's one person at the restaurant, you know, you sort of have to talk to them. If you know every person at the restaurant, like Larry does, you can just say to each table, hey, I got, I got to circulate because, you know, there's so many people here I got to see, obviously. Yeah. Kind of like at your wedding. You don't spend too much yes. time talking to anybody at your wedding because, you know, you got to say yeah, something you, to everybody. You get like 30 seconds with each person. Yeah. Um, so Larry 
is, you know, he's, he goes over to talk to the chef. He wants to make sure he's doing okay. I feel like he's really just, like, taking his temperature to see if he's going to start cursing any seconds. Um, although, as he points out, there's really no way to tell when that might happen. He tells Larry, actually, I'm not doing well because I lost the lottery today by one number. Um, he shows him the numbers on his arm and says, here, this, you know, that number was a one instead of a four. I would have won the lottery. And then in disgust, he rubs off the, uh, the, the, the numbers with his, uh, with his other hand and makes them disappear. And Larry uh, realizes that this is no survivor at all. He's just a lottery player who likes to curse on the side sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Larry is, okay, what am I going to do? You know, it is what it is. He goes back to visiting tables, schmoozing, saying hi to people. And suddenly, the chef blurts out for the whole restaurant to hear, fuckhead, shitface, cocksucker, asshole, son of a bitch. Everyone just is like completely silent and shocked. And we see Larry having a flashback to earlier in the episode when he saw the bald or, or the shaved head kid in the school. And he said he hoped one day to be able to do something nice like the kids who shaved their heads in solidarity. Yeah. And Larry breaks the tension by himself yelling out, scum-sucking motherfucking whore. Yeah. And by the way, this is not, you know, I guess a little bit he's helping uh, distract from someone who has uh, an involuntary, uh, you know, issue like the chef. But really, and he did that even knowing the chef wasn't actually a survivor. That's how it's presented. But really, isn't he just doing a nice thing for himself because he's saving the restaurant from failing and becoming, you know, the quote laughing stock that they had worried it would be? Uh, yeah, he's probably, yeah, this is probably, well, yeah. I guess, you know, we, we could just go by. It's by not as selfless as the, is the, you know, the high school kids who shave their heads purely to not make Not as them. selfless as them, although I would say, you know, this is one of the rare moments in the show where we actually are privy to Larry David's inner thoughts. Yes, literally. And yes. we know that they were coming from a good place. Like, well, whereas you could say after the fact that, well, you also benefited from this. Yeah. We know his motivations were pure because yes, we actually that's have true. to see yes. what was in his head. Yeah. Um, yeah. This reminds me very much of the like po- the possibly like apocryphal like it's like a classic like rabbi story. I don't even know if it's about a specific rabbi or just like a generic rabbi where you know someone's over at his house for a Shabbat meal and the guest like spills all over the table and then the rabbi immediately on purpose spills <laughs> also so as to like not make him feel bad. Yeah. Um, very similar. So uh, I guess Larry probably uh, studied uh, the Medrash and that's probably where. Yeah. He- got this idea for that yeah there's a lot of uh sort of apocryphal uh stories about rabbis like that there's a slightly similar one about the rabbi who um he's a guest at someone's house and the the food is he 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 gets served first because he's the great rabbi and he immediately eats all the food and immediately demands another plate before anyone else can get it and he just keeps eating and eating and eating and eating and and he eats all the food and no one else gets a chance to eat it and uh, upon exiting at the end of the night all his students are like rabbi you know so gluttonous so strange why did you eat all the food literally no one else got a single bite and he says oh i really you know i took the first bite and it was so disgusting and awful and inedible and i realized that if the if the host tasted it he would become enraged at the chef for having embarrassed uh, him in front of this great rabbi and he would fire the chef and so to protect the uh, the chef i decided to eat it all myself so i think that's, that's right. a lot of assumptions to make i think he was just hungry yeah <laughs> or these stories are not exactly uh, uh yeah, entirely as, as, as the saying goes um these stories might not, not might, might not be true but they don't tell stories like that about you or me yes um All and right. i would say what happens at the end of this episode might not be true but yeah. they tell stories like this about larry david they don't tell stories like this about you and me. all right so back in the episode so the, the the chef has cursed and larry has cursed and the room is still awkward and quiet at this moment 
Yes. And then Jeff yells out. Uh, cock, 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 jism, jism, grandma, cock. <laughs> then one after another, the uh, different various investors and uh, managers start cursing various words. They bum fucked and turd and fart. Come piss shit, bugger balls. <laughs> Damn it, hell crap, shit. You motherfucking bitch. Um, and then it's, it's at this moment that uh, Susie walks in and having nothing to do with all the cursing that goes on. Oh, no, no, hold on. Oh, As she walks in, Cheryl screams out, you motherfucking bitch. Right. Okay. So you think that she, Susie thought that was directed well, at that, her? That's obviously what happened. Yeah. Okay. As Susie walks in, Cheryl screams, you, you, you goddamn motherfucking bitch, really loudly. And there's Got no it. way for Susie to think it's anything but. Yeah, Cheryl yelling okay. at her because you know, yeah, yeah. I didn't, I didn't necessarily think that she was. I, I thought it was more just like Susie's just like walking in already in a huff. No, I mean that, that's clearly the implication. Yeah, I think you got to take another look at it. Yeah, I know. I, I, I'll yeah. I'll accept your interpretation. Yeah. Um, she calls Cheryl a car wash cunt. Yeah. I had a dental appointment. Yes. Um, even the, some of the customers start joining in on the fun. Yes. Um, they were all cursing. One of Felicio, Cunnilingus. Uh, I guess this wasn't uh, Doctor was, Jen's friend. For that was Larry's time. dad. Yeah. <laughs> Um, French French kissing. Yes. French kissing is a weird one. Rim job. Yeah. Piss. Fucking fucking fuck fuck. Schmuck putz. Tuchus liquor. Mm-hmm. Um, and everyone's yeah. having a grand old time. Oh no, Cunnilingus and Fellatio is Cheryl's dad. Yeah, and then the Tuchus one is Larry's dad. Got it. Yeah. Um, boy cock, girl cock. I don't know what girl cock is. E i e i o. You don't sing that song uh, to your kids horses. every night. Um, boycott, girlcock, yeah, yeah, yeah. What the hell is that? Um. Anyway, um, that's the end of season three. Yeah. And Larry's very happy. Everything seems to have uh, worked out. Yeah. This scene, just an incredible scene. That moment when Susie walks in and thinks Cheryl was cursing at her, which I guess I've missed and calls her the car wash cunt is the best moment of the series to date. Although again, I guess not for you since you didn't uh, interpret it that way. Oh, I still um, thought it was hilarious. That she, yeah. I, I, in my head, like she was just like already fuming as she walks in the car and then just walks in and sees Cheryl and yells at her. Yeah. But what you're saying makes more sense. Yeah. And it's just, but here's the thing, like this scene single handedly elevates what is otherwise kind of a mediocre episode to me. And it's surprising to me, like, how beloved this episode is. Like, let me, let me read you um, the all-time rankings of this episode compared to every other Curb episode from a number of the Curb episode rankings I found online. One, two, three, three, eight, eight, nine, eleven. Uh, to be succinct, the, its average ranking is the highest of any episode we've done yet, uh, edging out Crazy Eyes Killer. And to me, until the final scene, it's a slightly below average Curb episode. Now, with that final scene... It's it, that final scene does so much work. I will boost it up to pretty, 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 pretty good. Four pretties. It's the eighth best episode uh, that we've seen for me uh, through three seasons, just behind the season one finale, the group. But uh, I'm just shocked that people rate it so highly. And I think it's just because this last scene is so great that this is what people have fresh in their minds. Yeah. Um, yeah. I pretty much agree with you um, down to the grade itself. I'm going to as well give it four pretties. Pretty, 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 pretty good. Um, and yeah, I kind of agree with you that the episode as a whole is a little uneven. Uh, there are some good laughs, but the last scene is just so iconic. And 
even though I, I guess I kind of like had it in the back of my head, I didn't completely remember it, but like I was just like laughing for like five minutes after that scene. Um, and anytime a show, especially a season, could just like end on such a high note like that, that really elevates the episode. Yeah. Av, uh, if you uh, had been in the room and you had to drop a curse in that circumstance to uh, do a good thing for another person, what would you do? I would have said boycott, girl, cock, E-I-D-I-O. Yeah, obviously, obviously, yes. Um, and by the way, I guess, so we know that Larry did it for purely uh, altruistic purposes. Does Jeff and everyone else, I think they do it because, well, I mean, by the time everyone's doing it, it's because it's fun to do. But yeah. do Jeff and Michael York and the restaurant manager, they're doing it uh, basically to protect their investment, right? I guess, although, like, it's not completely obvious that, oh, I went to a restaurant and everyone started cursing is the way to say yeah. Save the restaurant, yeah. as opposed to oh, one guy who's the chef who has Tourette's <laughs> curses. And, it turns out you know, amazingly well, but you're right. That's it. sort of a uh, a hindsight uh, to, to you know, sort of a, a big assumption to make that this is going to be a successful strategy. Yeah, this is going to save the day by more people yelling out curse words yes. while in a fine restaurant. Fortunately, although every adult Larry has ever met is at the restaurant. Fortunately, uh, neither Sammy nor any of the of the children are here, right? Because otherwise, it would have been much more awkward. Although Sammy would have called him before I'd fuck so. Yeah, and then there was the who was it? It was um, Lane Michelson's kid who yes. calls Larry an asshole, right? Yes. Or no, she hears him no. call yes. Lane an asshole. Yeah, because she, oh, well, no. she hears Ted, the spelling. Ted's kid. It's Ted's kid who hears the spelling. It's Ted's yeah. kid, right, 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 who hears yeah. the spell asshole. Yeah, um, so um, yeah, so what goes around comes around. Um, who is your come with guy? Uh, my come with guy is the chef, Guy Bernier. Mm. Um, he's uh, he's a very colorful personality. Um, he curses a lot, and he gets everyone else to curse a lot. So, I like it. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, to me, uh, there's so many deserving candidates just for uh, their amazing curses in the restaurant. I'm gonna go with Jeff, who is the ultimate come with guy all season for me and all episode. He goes with Larry everywhere, from the graveyard to dig up Larry's mom to the store when Larry needs to buy colon cleanse. And when Larry steps up with the curses in response to the chef, everyone is in silence and shock. It's Jeff who steps up next with uh, cock, cock, jizz, and grandma cock. And, you know, grandma cock indeed. Uh, I don't know what boy cock, girl cock, grandma cock. We have all kinds of cocks. Uh, Jeff, you are the come with guy of the episode and of season three. This is really more of an Alex opinion than an Av opinion. I've given Jeff the come with guy now three times in the last five episodes and six times overall. Av, you've only given it to him twice and and never since uh, season two. But, uh, Nevertheless, he has a total of four cumulative come with guy points through three seasons, which puts him one and a half clear of Cheryl atop our standings at the end of episode three. Yeah, although I will say both uh, in this episode and in the one where they go to dig up the grave, where you picked him as the come with guy and I didn't, um, I think in both of those instances, you are correct that he was the correct uh, come with guy. So um, it's, it's not necessarily a difference of opinion, more, I don't know, stick and chaff, I guess. I, I, I guess my my... When I'm thinking of come with guy, my preference is to not pick, uh, obviously, Larry, because we never really want to pick Larry unless we have to. And I also would like to, for not to pick either Cheryl or Jeff unless it's, like, obvious that that's who it should be. Um, I like it to be more someone who's, like, a new character or someone who this is, like, the only time we see them. Yeah. Um, who is your worst person? I don't know if it's much of a um, competition here. But. Yeah, I mean, I think it's got to be Andy Portico, the yes. restaurant critic who uh, yells at his assistant for well, hold bringing on. him. Food. We'll get, he, sto- he steals the thumbs from Siskel and Ebert. 
He's a curmudgeonly right. asshole on TV. He's overly aggressive against children in the dodgeball game. He's incredibly awful to his assistant, as you said. Uh, he literally does not have a single redeeming characteristic. Uh, I mean, the one thing he did, which seems to be nice, the show kind of implies he did to screw over Larry. Um, I would argue well, that with the- what, I'll say, what I'll say on that is it might not be true, but they don't tell stories like that about you or me. <laughs> and everyone yeah. just assumes the worst about Andy Portico because he's an asshole. Yeah. The, with the way he treats his assistant, I would argue that he uh, could be the worst person we have ever yet seen on this show. So tell me, who is worse, Neighbor Dean or Andy Portico? Because I'm going to vote for Andy Portico. Um, Neighbor Dean you know is what? more vindicative, vindictive, but yeah. Andy Portico is just like in, uh, uh, just a bad person. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, I wow. think he is worse. Um, yeah, and like Neighbor Dean is just like kind of being annoying to Larry, like trying to just like get as mu- like milk as much as he can out of yeah. like this rich celebrity neighbor that he just that he has. Um, we do- we don't actually see him like do something like abusive or horrible to like a regular person or even to Larry. He's not like abusive to Larry. He's just kind of like he's trying to you know, get as much money out of him as he can. Yeah. Um, yeah. Andy Portico is a much worse person. I think I agree. Wow. So a 24 episode run with the belt for neighbor Dean after no one had had it for more than two episodes before that. Uh, will we see anyone go on as epic a run as that uh, over the remaining uh, 70 episodes of the show? Or, or do you think that uh, neighbor Dean is going to hold the record? Um, he'll probably hold the record. Cause I have a feeling where, you know, curb is probably entering the period where it just starts escalating and one upping it itself Yeah. Uh, over the next few seasons. Um, so I feel like we're not going to have uh, a stretch like that ever. Yeah, ever just again, uh, because by like by season seven, we'll be like, oh, Andy Portico, he's a nice guy. Yeah, there are uh, no uh, new celebrities in this episode, but there is one on this podcast. Uh, so uh, before we get to the emails, I think we have a guest today. <laughs> we're going to talk about someone who has played, has been in half the episodes this season, and has played multiple roles, actually, in Curb Your Enthusiasm. Susie Nakamura plays an HBO production designer on episode zero, as we call it here. And then in season three, we have a new character who looks very familiar to the Susie that we saw in episode zero, but her name is Teresa. And uh, Susie is played by none other than Susie Nakamura, who uh, you may recognize Susie not only from Curb, but from The West Wing and Modern Family, is uh, Ken Jong's wife on the ABC show Dr. Ken. Uh, earlier this year, she was on the new HBO show Avenue 5. So Susie, uh, welcome to Pretty, Pretty, Pretty Good. And my first question to you is, uh, did you play uh, two different people who just sort of look and sound alike? Or is there some kind of weird backstory where, where Susie has some kind of flame out at HBO and so she has to change her identity and get a new name and eventually she works her way back up and she becomes an assistant restaurant manager? Uh, first of all, I don't think anything uh, is that complicated on Curve. <laughs> we don't, we don't uh, go into that type of deep, deep dive for character backgrounds. Yeah. But um, before we started shooting the um, restaurant arc we did discuss because Larry knew that I was coming back um, to play a different character so we discussed like should she look different and I think that's when I I think I brought a pair of glasses or a number pair of glasses to and to try on and I asked him which one does he like and we decided that I would just be a different person and maybe I would be Susie's sister if if I had to justify it in some way. Oh, okay. So but that's then, actually reassuring because, you know, there's not a lot of concern in Curb for, you know, continuity errors and things like that. So I'm impressed that, that these were things they actually discussed. 
let's go back to the mockumentary special in 99. How did you first get cast for that? And how did you get involved in the first place? Well, because Curb is improvised, uh, there's a very short list of people that can do it because you have to improvise. And so most of the characters are take are pulled from like either the Groundlings or Second City or Improv Olympic. And Jeff Garland and I are from Second City. And actually this that season, there were tons of people from the Second City. So we all knew each other already. Then, uh, Kate and Flannery he... and I were actually hired on the same day. Oh, wow. Oh, cool. And so like, and they're all buddies of mine. So Jeff Garland was a bud, is a buddy of mine. And he asked me to, to, I think I auditioned for it. I think there were auditions because this was, wasn't supposed to be a series. It was supposed to be a one hour special. And so I auditioned with Larry and as this production designer. And then, I mean, I think it was like show up at this unused office building at 10 o'clock at night bring your own clothes. I did my own makeup in the lobby. If you guys remember the episode, I, I reveal a stage design to him. Mm-hmm. Which he doesn't the, love. <laughs> yes, the producers took me aside and they said, listen, Larry has not seen this. And so we want the first time you know, that he sees this to be on camera. And so uh, they, wanted, they wanted me to really sell this awful stage design and they wanted him to hate it but they also wanted him to you know try and diplomatically tell me that he doesn't like it how well Uh, did you know larry before you uh filmed the special uh not at all i mean i met him at the audition and he knew i was friends with jeff okay so season three is kind of a reversal where uh larry kind of pitches his ridiculous designs to you guys the investor team such as how the bathrooms should work and the, uh, the bells on the tables and the military outfits for the waiters. So I guess there is yeah. some, you know, uh, reversal of continuity in some ways, you know, parallel. Yeah. And I think, I always think that's funny. You know, when, I don't know, when you, when you see someone uncomfortable and they have to be nice. Right. That's, that's always, it's, for, it's awful yeah. for us in real life, but it is fun to watch. Uh, I guess in a way that, you know, Curb, the entire show is about a guy who is uncomfortable and, in theory, has to be nice, but then just chooses not to most of the time because was he? Can. Yeah, yeah. Let's talk exactly. about uh, the final, uh, yeah. the final scene of uh, this episode, which is of course when everybody is dropping uh, all the incredible curse words, uh, starting with Larry, who's trying to you know cover up for the chef with Tourette's. I, I was all of that you know right off the cuff, like you guys were all improvising there, or was any of that scripted? And I guess my second question show, is, did you get a chance to say improvised, anything? The whole show is improvised, you guys. Do you guys know that? Because I listened well, to an episode and you guys had a lot of problems yeah. <laughs> with the logic. This yeah. show is what is improvised. Yeah. No, no, we, we, we understand that, but yeah, we, yeah, we, like we, to we really do get it, in the weeds. <laughs> yeah. Oh, but okay. I guess I'm just wondering, you know, if, if any of those, well, so did you get a chance to, to give your own curse there that, that, what, that didn't make the cut? Or, and if not, uh, what, what would you have said in that circumstance? <laughs> I ha- you guys, I have to tell you, I shot this over 18 years ago <laughs> and I didn't have HBO, so I've never seen this. I've never seen the season. It's very good. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would recommend. <laughs> so I, I was just, I, 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 people have spoken a lot about the way that Curb is improvised. And I guess like I've, I've read before that it kind of is like maybe a 10 to 20 page outline per episode. And then I was just a little curious if you can like elaborate 
which is kind of how that works in terms of how it gets from script to on screen from like an actor's perspective and like what from my perspective i don't know what happened in subsequent seasons but mm-hmm. uh i improvised my audition uh and i got to set you know for the for the original one hour special and they basically said you're a production designer and you're going to pitch this to larry and he's hopefully not going to like it and then that's it <laughs> and so and that was it and so he at he told me to come you know to show up for work in santa monica at this abandoned restaurant and i showed up and i asked that you know i got into hair now they had hair and makeup so that was a big improvement um and I got into wardrobe and I was asking people, do you, know, do you guys know what role I'm playing? And no one knew. And they said, I think you might have, you ha- might have to do something with the restaurant. And so I saw Lou DiMaggio there. I saw Jim and none of us knew what we were doing. We didn't know where we were. We didn't, I didn't know how old I was supposed to be. And we were, got dressed in all of our wardrobe or whatever. And we came to set and we sat around a table and they got the cameras set up and they said, can you see everyone? And they were setting up the shot and Ted Danson, none of us knew what we were doing. (laughs) We didn't know why we were sitting there and we didn't know who we were. And finally, when they were ready to shoot, like they had, they had lit it and everything like that, and they had done a couple of practice passes to, to make sure the Steadicam can get all of our faces. And then Larry said, okay, so I'm gonna open this restaurant. You're an investor, you're an investor, you're a manager, you're an assistant manager. And that's when we found out, and that's when we started shooting. So you don't even get that four to six page script. If there, oh, there was something yeah. in Larry's pocket that he would take out and look at, but like none of us moment. saw it. So for you, you know, you're a pro, obviously, you have a ton of experience with improvising like that. Is it harder for, you know, like the Michael Yorks of the world, who's obviously, you know, a legendary actor, but might not be uh, unless he has more of an improv- or, you know, improvisational background than I'm aware of. Is it harder for, for some of those folks than somebody like you who, you know, this is what you're used to? Uh, I don't know. I can't. I don't want to speak for Michael York. Yeah. Or, no, I don't mean, I just, he he's little, such a well-known he actor. He was a little nervous. Yeah. He was saying, I don't, you know, I don't know what I'm going to say. I don't know if I'm going to be funny or, or whatever, but that's really not, we took the pressure off and we said, you know, you don't, you're playing Michael York. So just yeah. say what you would say if you were an investor in a restaurant. I think it's easier to quote unquote play yourself. Yeah. So uh, let's come back to that last scene. Cause it's just, I love it so much. So does he, at, at least by that by that point and that's obviously the end of the season does he sort of explain like all right i'm going to yell a bunch of curse words and then you know jeff you're going to yell a bunch of curse words and michael you're going to yell a bunch of curse words or is there not even that set up you know what i don't remember yeah <laughs> i'm so sorry <laughs> no that's okay because i'm so you know michael right off the cuff he says he's like he says bum fuck turd fart whatever he says <laughs> i'm thinking like i don't know if in his legendary career he's ever you know thrown that string of words together <laughs> But, um, and, uh, you know, but it's just, it's such an incredible scene because we just see, you know, from person to person is they're each just saying whatever, you know, terrible curse words they can possibly think of at the moment. And, you know, it was 18 years ago, but what, what, what was the reaction in the room? Because sitting by myself in my room 18 years later, seeing it for the 10th time, I'm still, you know, laughing uproariously. <laughs> okay. I'll have to check it out. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, that kind of stuff is always you know, it's that kind of stuff is always fun for everybody, as long as it's a fun set. And that was a fun set. We weren't getting paid a ton of money, but the food was good and everyone was nice. And we laughed every single day. And 
the the added pleasure for me is because all of my friends were in that episode. Um, and so it was a, you know, not, it wasn't a social event, but it is, it's, you feel more comfortable when you're surrounded by people that you know, and we, you know, um, I was looking at the IMDB listing for the show and I mean, everyone is from Second City. So that's interesting. Including Paul Sands is a legendary, like one of the original members uh, or early, early members of the Compass Players, which became the Second City. Um, Ian Gomez, Dave Pasquese, Brandon Johnson, Jim Stahl. Uh, I mean, every single person I knew or was a Shelly Berman. I remember during lunch, we went into someone, one of the producer's trailers and they were playing old Shelly Berman, like uh, his own old phone bits on they got it he got like a vhs copy and they were playing playing it for us it was just it was just a fantastic experience comedy wise you know like to get to see all these people paul dooley like all those like original second city guys we got to play with them and improvise with them it's fantastic so as far as i know larry david doesn't have second city as part of his background was it so? Was it just as Jeff Garland was the connection there that kind of brought all these Second City people into the Curb family? Uh, probably, yeah, because we all had a personal relationship with Jeff. But also, like he had to go to the Groundlings in Second City to cast uh, to cast the show, right? Because that's where you're going to get the most talented improvisers. Yeah, and it's not like there's twenty improv theaters to choose from. There's only two. Yeah, it's it's so it's interesting because in, in terms of the improv, like there are a few scenes where it almost looks like, you know, you, you know that somebody has to kind of get some point across in order for like what's supposed to be taken out of this scene, but it almost felt like whoever gets to say something first, that's what would be in the show. Um, which feels like a very just like nervous way. Like when you're just like a young actor who's like trying to make their mark that like, if I don't even, I don't even have lines. I have to kind of just like fight for my lines during the scene to try to get something in. No, it's, that's not what improv is. Improv is basically, if anything, it's throwing focus to someone else. And it's not like you go out with nothing. I mean, if you guys had to improvise a, a restaurant scene and I said, you're a waiter and you're a customer, you would totally know what to say. <laughs> You've been to restaurants before. Yeah. You would ring the bell and I would come over. In a, in, <laughs> in a scene that's two minutes in the actual episode, how much tape are you guys rolling uh, in the room as you guys are throwing lines back and forth at each other? Uh, I don't know what the shooting ratio is, but let's say, you know, if, if you, if we were improvising a scene at a store and, you know, I wanted to buy a shirt from you, Larry would yell cut and he would say, I like the part where you didn't like the, you didn't like how long the receipt was. Um, so get to that faster. And yeah. so we would improvise it again. I would talk about the receipt more and then we would maybe add a joke and then Larry would yell cut and he would say, I love the receipt. T tell that joke. And then, and then just say that you, you know, you left the car running or something like that, you know? So it's, it's like you're improvising and then you're tweaking and you're keeping jokes and you're dumping jokes and you're getting rid of the, you know, the extra dialogues. So, the, so you get, so you can get to the plot point or the, the character arc quicker so that, you know, it's more efficient. And then, you know, they're not just like turning the camera on and letting us 
shoot a documentary. It's there is some, some something you have to accomplishment you something yeah. you have to accomplish even if I'm just like at a store trying to buy something from you. Well, as you describe it, it's really funny because it almost sounds like so. There's the the Crazy Eyes Killer episode earlier in the season where uh, Chris Williams playing Crazy Eyes Killer. He he says to Larry, "Let me give you some of my lyrics." And then you can critique them. And then he says the lyrics and Larry says, I like it. I like it. But, you know, maybe we do it again. And the second motherfucker instead becomes a bitch. And it seems like that's almost the kind of thing that Larry really did, um, you know, uh, off camera uh, yes. in, re- in real life as you guys were filming. <laughs> that's exactly what he did. I know. Yeah. I know Chris Williams. We did dodgeball together. Oh, he was in dodgeball. That's true. I totally forgot about I totally that. forgot about that. There's a, there's a dodgeball scene in this episode where um, the restaurant reviewer gets his yeah. thumbs broken and by Larry. Uh, yeah, it's too bad that you weren't around uh, to teach him the five rules of dodgeball, and then he couldn't avoid <laughs> that. Yeah, you are probably the preeminent actor in dodgeball. I mean, these are the only two you know, prominent examples of dodgeball that I can remember seeing. And, uh, and Billy Madison. Oh, you know what? You're right. I haven't seen that in like 15 years. But <laughs> so, all right. So you still got two out of three. So you can uh, <laughs> uh, put that on your resume. I'm gonna yeah. be typecast as someone that's always yeah. associated with dodgeball. You're always in dodgeball movies. Yeah, dodgeball not a popular game, I think, uh, in in the Corona time because there's a lot of uh, sharing of the ball and a lot of people in a tight space, unfortunately. Yeah, I hated that game. I always felt like it was for bullies. Especially when it's uh, two uh, adult men bullying a bunch of children, as we see in this, ep- in this episode with uh, the Andy Portico <laughs> character and, and Larry. I played a pregnant woman once, and I got called for the next two years as pregnant women. Oh, wow. That's uh, probably not like, the- It didn't matter like, what kind of person she was or how old. It was like, as long as she she's pregnant. pregnant. Yeah. So did you ask the casting folks at Dodgeball, had they seen this episode of Curb? And is that what, uh, <laughs> why they thought, listen, we need to get Susie on here. <laughs> I doubt that. I doubt that. Yeah, you were like a mail order bride, right, if I recall? I wasn't a real mail order bride. Movie, I think that was just a, a mean uh, name that Vince Vaughn's character called me. Oh, okay. yeah. I'm going to have to rewatch that movie then. In my head, you were an actual mail order bride. All right. We'll save that for our, our dodgeball podcast. We'll do a dodgeball podcast. Yeah. yeah. I'm sure it was a gold digger, but... Um, fair, fair enough. Yeah. I think, he was, it was, I think it was just sort of like a racial stereotype. Oh, interesting. All right. Well, the more you know. Um, I guess I would just want to know, to the extent that you're, based on what your experience with him was, was like, to what extent you feel like the Larry David we see on Curb is actual, like a biography of the real person and you know is is this just hammed up is is this like kind of the way he would behave on screen with these like just little neuroses all the time uh no i mean everything you see on television is is something hammed up you guys know that right <laughs> well to an extent uh yeah it's, i'm sure this is like i'm i'm sure the series is basically larry's fantasy of what he wanted to say in real life but never can or like funny thoughts that he had you know or, or a joke that he thought of for stand-up and would love to see it and that kind of stuff but no he's not uh he's super nice he's very he's very funny obviously um he's very smart and he loves the ridiculous and i think that's what the show is is you kind of get to live in the ridiculous for a short period of time and just to see what happened yeah, my Larry David theory is that over the last 20 years, it's become life imitating art, where in the early seasons of Curb, he's playing this, you know, 
artificial version of himself sort of getting to live out the id and sort of what he wishes what you know what people wish they could do but couldn't necessarily do but by 2020 because larry david has become uh so famous and beloved and celebrated for the character larry david he plays on curb he can now even in real life do the things that maybe in 2002 he wouldn't dare do because he's like you know what you know <laughs> i do it on the show and i get such credit for it and people are going to treat me like this in real life anyways because you know so many people can't really distinguish between the two and so uh, I, I heard an in- i heard an interview with him in new york where he said like he was actually like fans would scream out the window you know when he's walking around the streets of manhattan and say hey larry can i give you a ride somewhere and he's like yeah sure what the hell i'll take a ride and then his daughter's like what the hell's wrong with you you can't get in cars with strangers <laughs> so uh but in curb your enthusiasm he would do it and so <laughs> Yeah, and that would be the episode, right? Yeah. Although, yeah, but I think that obviously Larry David in 2002 was was not the Larry David of 2020 because, you know, so the, season three was when I first started watching this show. And at the time, I sort of vaguely knew of him. And, I, you know, I was a lot younger and obviously I wasn't anywhere near Hollywood, but I vaguely knew of him as, as the co-creator of Seinfeld. But, you know, and I knew that, you know, the Costanza character was based on him, but I didn't really know that much about him. I didn't know that he had been on a writer on SNL or, you know, everything else he had done. Uh, and by now he's, you know, arguably has a, a higher curating than even like Seinfeld himself. And so it's really incredible how, how much he's grown in the last 18 years, just because, you know, how beloved the show is and his character is obviously. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely a, like a cult favorite, I think. And I think, I don't think he wanted to do a series. I mean, according to Jeff, he did the one hour special because I, I, I don't know if he was actually thinking about going back to stand up or what, but. Um, he was hesitant to do the series, and I, th- I th- according to Jeff, he said, I'm not going to do it unless you play my manager. <laughs> uh, and so I love seeing those two together. Well, I'm glad he agreed, because <laughs> where would we be without this in our lives the last 20 years? Or, well, I guess we'll get a season every three years or so, but it's great. Yeah. I also think in 2020, people are less tolerant of people like Larry David, or at least Larry David's character. Yeah, unless you're grandfathered in because you're literally Larry David. So he can get away with what no, no, one, no one else really can, probably. <laughs> Maybe. It seems uh, as if this grand opening is a massive success, and the episode ends on, on really a high note. Uh, you know, everyone's having a good old time cursing at each other, and the restaurant's full, and everybody's excited. And then, as we said, you know, Curve doesn't really have a lot of continuity from year to year, but the, the restaurant just doesn't really come back. And season four is all about he's going to New York to star on Broadway, which actually is a real life thing that Larry did uh, in between seasons of Curb later. And I guess to try and, and obviously, you know, you're not playing a method uh, actor, obviously. Uh, that's not the role on Curb. But does, does the Teresa character, you know, what happens to her after Bobo's, uh, you know, it has this big successful opening and then I guess it just disappears. So is she still a rest, uh, assistant restauranting in, in, in Hollywood or did she go on? Maybe she has a third sister who uh, could come back on Curb in season 11 or, you know, what, what do you think <laughs> happens? Where's the author yeah. of that character? And, or I, the like, <laughs> I love that. I, I think Teresa is still in the restaurant industry because mm-hmm. there's a high turnover. But I think once you get to be like uh, a management position, then you just kind of go from restaurant to restaurant. Yeah. Uh, but I love the idea of a third sister. Yeah. When you improvise, you don't remember what you say. Yeah. Like it's right. only nerds like us who are so analyzing shows. it. Yeah. <laughs> Eighteen years later. I've done shows where I would improvise, and the audience, you know, like a year later, would repeat back something I said, and I just, I never have any recollection. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, you Avenue know? Five, and I read, it, has 
has been renewed for a second season. Are you guys? Yes. Uh, so are you guys? I, I assume you're probably not filming right now. Like, do you know what the time timeline is on that? Or uh, yes, we're going back to London uh, later this year, and we're going to shoot nine or ten more episodes, probably till about April, maybe April or May. I'm not sure what the timeline is. But All right. We're, so yeah, the goal is maybe by the end of 2021, we might get a second season. Yes, hopefully. Hopefully, yeah. Obviously, there's a lot of uh, external factors affecting that timing. All right, so Susie, thank you so yes, much for joining us. Yes, now that I'm on HBO, I got HBO. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> oh, that's that's good. Good. <laughs> HBO yeah, is a good channel. There's a lot yeah. of stuff there. I would recommend uh, <laughs> there's a great show with some archives on uh, HBO Max called The Curb Your Enthusiasm. So <laughs> you might want to check it out. And uh, there's, there's a character, Teresa, who has some good knowledge in season three. <laughs> there? Yes, they have. If, if you have like all HBO Go or HBO Max, it has the whole uh, the whole series. Yep. All one hundred episodes. All right. Okay. <laughs> it never occurred to me. I'm so sorry. I know that sounds weird, but it never occurred to me to go back and watch them. But I will. Yeah, something to sounds really good. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's a good show. I would I would definitely recommend it. <laughs> yeah, and when you once you get around to it, and then you become a curb super fan, you want to come back on and talk about <laughs> an episode of your choice. You're always welcome to. Absolutely. That sounds great. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Susie, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, guys. Is it time for us to uh, call the postman now? Sorry, I'm seeing here that um, Trump has defunded the postman. (laughs) No postman today. Um, Oh, well, actually, I I think we we could get uh, one in from the postman. Oh, so somebody sent it uh, FedEx instead. They had to pay $24 (laughs) instead of 55 cents. Yeah. All right. Let's see. Uh, let's see what the FedEx man has. Okay. All right. FedEx man. Vargas, uh, I believe, is his name. <laughs> Vargas. Postman. Postman, come here. Tell the neighborhood. First email is from Zach Brooks. He asks why Larry didn't just put the car in drive. Um, that's a good question. Maybe he could have just plowed through those. Uh, curtains or I don't even know what those things are called in the uh, car wash. Um, He also asked, why did Larry have such a reaction to the numbers written on the chef's arm? Did he think it was a prison tattoo? Um, No, as we explained, um, he thought it was a uh, Holocaust survivor tattoo that uh, one would receive in a concentration camp. Of course, it turned out not to be the case. Um, And Zach gives the episode four pretties out of five. He says, based on average score, season three is the weakest so far at 3.6. He gave season two an average ranking of 3.9. Season one, an average of 3.7, and season three, an average of 3.6. So very close uh, all across the board, but uh, he puts season three last. Um, And then finally, we go to Olin Allen. He writes, hey, guys, what a great end to the season. I think this may actually be the good feel episode of absolute anything. That ending is just so fucking Bum pickle glorious, cathartic, almost spiritual. I just had to rewatch it over several times when I had finished the episode. I was just glowing and smiling throughout. Sammy certainly has a lot to live up to with that family of her. In my top five best swears, Cheryl and Michael York being the other two. I know he directs the vast majority of episodes, so there will naturally be a lap over between the great episodes and Robert Robert B. Wide. But I think there is something when he is given a chance to wrap up an episode. He just handles it magnificently. Just want to give him a come tickling shout out. Also, this episode was very educational for me as it informed me about Tourette's when I knew fuck all about it. Saw it when finishing college and soon after when I did land a job, I shared my morning bus stop with someone with Tourette's. My young, naive self would probably have been all awkward and maybe even a bit disapproving, but I was cool and relaxed with it. So thanks for that, Larry. 
Uh, he says, the come with guy, so many to choose from. Larry is the instigator, come with guy by helping out the chef with his own sweary outburst, but he needed his own come with guy to back him up. And Jeff and Michael with Cheryl also superbly cheering in. Villain of the week, the Roger Ebert style food critic. Episode ranking five, pretty fucking goods out of five. Also, this is the last season I had on DVD between series four through eight. There may be episodes I haven't seen and rather erratically, although Curb was probably shown a little more respect on Seinfeld in Irish and British channels, albeit on more minor channels. Absolutely love the producer's film, particularly the original film, so I'm all raring to go for the next series. Um, yeah, I'm very excited for that as well. Um, I have seen the producers uh, on Broadway. Um, I have never seen the original film, but yeah, maybe that could be another opportunity for us to do a bonus episode that we will say we're going to do and then not do, much like we said for sour grapes okay well next week we will start season four with uh mel's offer uh, season four maybe because it was the first season that i watched from start to finish on a weekly basis as each episode came out I, my favorite season of curb uh but also my perception is it's it's one of the most beloved seasons of the show chock full of classic moments tons of a-list cameos and guest appearances so i am so excited i think with every season this uh, show has gotten a little bit better. Hopefully the podcast has gotten a little better. I don't know. And uh, I, I think that season four is really going to be pretty, 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 